there was a professor of micro, my, yeah, mycology at uh, Reading University, Professor Hurst. And he had this bit of equipment called the Hurst spore trap, which was for sampling fungal spores from the air. And it worked using the cyclonic system. So it would suck the air in and spin the spores out and catch them. Catch them. And he'd, he'd had this idea of scaling this up for sampling insects in the field, because part of when you're working on entomology, you have to sample the populations out there. And there's various, you know, various methods before it'd been inefficient or it damaged the samples. So we were trying to look at a more efficient way of doing this. So we sort of went through various prototypes and tested and scaled this up. We ended up with this device that was actually driven by a, a leaf, leaf blower motor as a suction part of it. So we ended up with a device which would suck insects off the ground, spin them around, and empty them out into a little container. And it wasn't until a few years later when I saw this guy at Dyson had launched something for <laughs> domestic use, but I realized we'd actually come up with something, a similar principle to a Dyson vacuum cleaner. Dr. Robert Harwood is a food industry expert, business strategist, and a scientist. In this episode of What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, Robert describes his journey from serving as a child chorister at Exeter Cathedral in the Southwest of England to working alongside leading companies around the world. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this episode of, uh, of What I Wish I Knew. Uh, on the, this podcast, uh, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Robert Harwood. Robert um, has a, had an amazing career, and albeit in the consulting um, exterior facing to business world, but he's been so successful with businesses um, along his journey. And his journey started, actually, he was born and brought up in Devon, which for those who are listening in and don't know Britain very well, it's on a beautiful part of the, of, of the southern coast. Um, and he's also um, hails and he describes to me whilst he's studied um, engineering and went in and did a PhD and went onwards and upwards in, into an MBA, etc. His background as well is that um, he's a chorister and he stands by the learning and, and his, um, his solid, solid knowledge of music has helped him th a, throughout his career. So uh, without further ado, uh, Robert, welcome to this podcast. Um, Thank you. I guess if I can ask you, you know, we, we kind of plot around people's career and lives, but can I ask you in your younger days, you, you kind of described in your bio to me a bit about your your early, early stages and you were in the choir, et cetera. Can you give us a bit of background about your, your um, early life? Okay. Well, I, was, yeah, I started as a chorister at Exeter Cathedral when I was seven years old, seven or eight. And that was basically like having a job. We had to go and rehearse at eight o'clock in the morning, the one hour before school. At the end of school, we went out. We did another rehearsal when we did a performance. And we did that every day and three times on Sunday. It was a boarding school as well. <clears throat> so that sort of, yeah, it was very good at learning discipline and learning how to get on and do a job. Good for teamwork, working, the, yeah, working with the, our choristers and also, also for presenting in front of a lot of people or performing in front of a lot of people. I mean, Christmas Eve would have a couple of thousand in the cathedral and you'd be standing there and you'd open up and sing, everyone waiting for you to start. And it was a, yeah, it was a great feeling and yeah, it was as a unique experience, which only, only cathedral choristers will know. Yeah. And is that something uh, that you chose or was in the family way? Well, my grandmother had been a 
music teacher and she'd been very musical. My father had sung in a choir when he was younger. My mother used to sing a reasonable amount. But yeah, one of the teachers spotted me at uh, assembly of a school and said I should go for voice trials. And I got into the choir and got a scholarship. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And then tell me what and then why you kind of navigated into the life sciences. I think it was, I think it was probably the teachers I had at my various schools. We had a rather eccentric science teacher called Mr. Rooney, who, who also taught religious studies, incidentally. But he was, yeah, he was quite inspiring in quite a mad sort of way. But yeah, he definitely sparked a lot of interest in science and in biology in particular. Okay. And then from there, you went and studied at Imperial College. So t um, tell me about the kind of plotted piece of there through to, to the PhD, because clearly you're, you're one of these uh, um, people um, who's starting to map a little bit of their journey. Yeah, I think wherever I've been, I've liked to left a bit of a legacy. So for example, at Imperial College, there was no cycling club and I wanted to be captain of something. So I founded the cycling club and made myself captain <laughs> and, designed, and designed all the kit and set it up. Similarly, at uh, uh, Edinburgh, when I did my MBA, they had no MBA business school tartan. So I designed and registered a Scottish tartan, which is still <laughs> there in my name. But it's, it's, nice to leave, it's nice to leave a bit of a legacy wherever you go. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Imperial. It's a, yeah, it was a great place to study and a lot of interesting minds. And I, I, I tried to take advantage of as much as I could and did an undergraduate research opportunity uh, program at Silwood Park. And yeah, and that sort of primed me first to sort of go on to a PhD really. And I found that, I actually found, I found that, yeah, studying for a degree, I, I enjoyed much more than my A-levels. And it was sort of where I began to blossom because I, I began to get sort of passion for a subject and we could choose what we, what we worked on. And in my, my early days, I had, I had visions of uh, getting a Nobel Prize or something. <laughs> but, you know, you, yeah, yeah, you, you often, often have these grand ambitions. It's, it's how good to aim high. Up, how did you end up then um, looking at insects? Right, so that was, it was really, yeah, there's two things which I was, I was doing well at. One was neurophysiology and the other was uh, sort of entomology and environmental sciences. And I, I did actually like neurophysiology, but you know, I realized if I went down that route, I'd have to spend the rest of my life, life knocking rats on the head and opening them up <laughs> to see what was happening inside. And I thought I'd do something a bit more eco-friendly, so I, so I went down that insect route. But insects in themselves are, are fascinating and you know, there's so much diversity. But it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, what, yeah, what I, what I found for a biology degree, it does, it does cover a broad spectrum of things. You know, it went from, we did some psychology. We even did a bit of, there's a bit of engineering as a course on timber technology. There was, you know, agriculture and producing food and then insects, physiology. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very good degree to do. I think it was, yeah. And then you described, um, I read somewhere about your, special equipment that you would develop. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that was, that was later on, later right. on during the PhD. There was a professor of micro, my, yeah, mycology at uh, Reading University, Professor Hurst. And he had this bit of equipment called the Hurst spore trap, 
which was for sampling fungal spores from the air. And it worked using the cyclonic system. So it would suck the air in and spin the spores out and catch them. Catch them. And he'd, he'd had this idea of scaling this up for sampling insects in the field, because part of when you're working on entomology, you have to sample the populations out there. And there's various, you know, various methods before it being inefficient or it damaged the samples. So we were trying to look at a more efficient way of doing this. So we sort of went through various prototypes and tested and scaled this up. We ended up with this device. It was actually driven by a, a leaf, leaf blower motor as a suction part of it. So we ended up with a device which would suck insects off the ground, spin them around, and empty them out into a little container. And it wasn't until a few years later when I saw this guy Dyson had launched something for <laughs> domestic use that I realized he'd actually come up with something, a similar principle to a Dyson vacuum cleaner. But, but a couple of years before him. But, being, but the thing is, when this is often a problem with scientists. You, you're very focused and passionate on your area of research. And I think in hindsight, it would be good if we could see that this had applications beyond sampling insects. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so really what happened then is, is Dyson stole your idea and commercial. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I don't know. But he definitely, we, we both have the same idea around the same time. <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually an interesting point here. I mean, Dyson, highly creative and already even sort of five minutes into this interview, Robert, you know, I feel I can, and I can tell because I know you a, a, a bit, that creativity is so powerful. Um, just tell me a bit more about that. You know, um, is that something that is natural in you? Is that something that happens when you get stimulated by a, a particular um, a, a situation? Just, just help the people listening in a bit about that particular asset. I think an important thing about you know, anything you do is to have some passion about it. I mean, you can turn the, turn the most mundane task into something interesting if you have passion. So for example, when I was doing my A-levels, I also worked at a, a local hypermarket in uh, Devon and would have to do stock takes. So I'd be given 2000 bamboo canes to count. So I got through that by challenging myself and timing myself each time I counted 100 and see if I could beat my personal best. And that way it turned something which was most people would find incredibly boring into something, you know, slightly more exciting, at least to get through it. But it's always, and, and, and the same goes when I later worked at a contract research lab in, in Scotland, you know, I'd often have 500 plants to pot or, you know, sort of really large tasks. But you can always find some, some way of livening things up and interesting yourself. But, but yeah, most, most important thing is to have passion in everything. And also I've tried to preserve my, my childlike uh, sense of curiosity. <laughs> That's something I, I don't, want to, don't want to lose. Yeah, it's good to be curious. Yeah. And obviously you have to limit that because you can end up going down you know, a track and spending a lot of time doing something which isn't useful. But you know, it's always good to look slightly beyond uh, where, you, where you've previously been looking to see what else turns up. And you that's useful in consultancy as well. Yeah, do you feel like that sense of curiosity, though, is something that distinguishes people that do really well in the sciences? I think so, yeah. I think it's, yeah, I mean, most, most scientists should be, should be curious. And also, also, yeah, not taking things at face value, challenging assumptions. So if someone's, yeah, if someone said something to you, yeah, not necessarily just taking it, you know, checking it out. And that's an important part in science and also in consultancy. Mm -hmm. And just on that bridge then, you know, 
you described that as science and you just about to touch on consulting, but, but even in the business world, then would you, um, you know, how, how would you link that to anybody working in a company or a business? Should, should they be living that, that particular habit that you, you've uh, talked about in order to, in order to be successful? Yeah, depending on what, on what, what their role is, but yes, it's good to, you know, look for new opportunities and and I suppose one one thing is to always have a grand vision and a grand plan and always be working on something a few years ahead of what you're doing I mean that's that sort of I've always tried to do so you know either developing your website or trying to develop new business areas but yeah always trying to progress things and not and not stand still that's an yeah. important thing yeah. yeah and tell me Robert about because I think that there was a momentous time where you, you kind of, with all the studies that you had and the experience, and then you said, right, I'm off to Scotland for a short term. Just tell us a bit about that. Cause again, I, you know, well, originally like after, after I'd done my PhD, yeah, jobs as entomologists are, aren't that common. So you have to take what, what you can. So, well, during the PhD, I managed to do some work in Peru which is wonderful, working in the cotton fields near, near Pura in the north of Peru, looking at, uh, looking at uh, ecotoxicology and also insect resistance. And then later on in the PhD, I went over to work in Norway at the North Institute for Natural Forskening, looking at hoverflies. So that was interesting. It was, it was good, good to get some international exposure. But after the PhD, I, yeah, I took a 10-week contract in the Macaulay Institute in Aberdeen. And whilst I was there, I got headhunted to uh, Scottish Agricultural College in Auchincroof. And whilst I was there, Inveresk Research near Edinburgh found me and persuaded me to join them. So, and I ended up staying for seven years in total. But I had a, yeah, I, th I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was an interesting time. And I, I still, part of me still misses Scotland. Yeah, it's a nice place. What a great city too, huh? Yeah, Edinburgh is wonderful, yeah. And that's why after I'd worked in contract research at Inverest Research for five years, I wanted to do my MBA and I did that at, at Edinburgh. So I could actually live in Edinburgh as a student for a year, which is a great experience. And then when you were up in, in Scotland and you were running as part of the consulting, was, was there any kind of new open opportunities or, or learning along the way? I was. When I joined Inveresk Research, I was, which is now part of Charles River, they had no entomologists. Well, they had had an entomologist, but unfortunately he'd suffered a bit of a breakdown and had left. So I was brought in and I had a lot of, I had, a, I had about 30 trials to complete in a couple of months, which, which I just launched myself into and did some 90 hour weeks. It, I just took it as a challenge and yeah, I managed to get through it and I completed them all and that was done which everyone, everyone appreciated. But then I was, yeah, I had to basically set up the entomology service of a company. So that involved designing and sourcing equipment, writing the SOPs, uh, working out what trials to do. Uh, yeah, basically everything. So it was like setting up your own business, but with, you know, the company taking risk, which is, you know, it's a good, good training ground. So thinking about and, that... Uh, not, not, I suppose that another thing which I have to thank them for is they gave me a lot of autonomy as well. You know, I was straight out, straight out my PhD, but they really just left me to it and let me do it, which is great. 
So kind of building on that, I mean, you know, Robert, you've, you've taken a, a number of different steps, you know, through your career. How did you, how did you go about thinking about how, where you were going to go and what was, you know, what moves to make? Cause you mentioned earlier that, you know, people should have a plan. Um, do you feel like you were following a plan or was it something that was a little more spontaneous? I suppose it's what you've called an, an emergent strategy. There was a sort of plan there, but I knew when I was in academia that I wanted to go into something more commercial. And that's what led me into contract research, which is a good balance of commerce and sort of academic style work. And whilst I was there, I enjoyed interacting with clients and enjoyed, you know, the commercial side. So I thought I'd, I'd go and study for a PhD afterwards. And I didn't really have much of an idea what I was going to do after my PhD, but I thought, let's just take a, take a dive, just give up this perfectly good job, go full-time, sorry, the MBA, yeah, full-time MBA for one year, and then see what happens afterwards. And yeah, I knew I wanted to do something commercial, wasn't quite sure what, but consultancy had always interested me. And whilst I'd been at InRest Research, I remember sending off, sending off my CV to companies like PA Consulting and McKinsey and getting, getting letters back saying, you don't quite have the qualifications we, we require. Because what I'd done being an academic was sent them off an academic uh, CV with a list of 30 publications at the back and lots of scientific names and told them what species I'd studied. And, and it was all, I see now, it's all totally inappropriate for applying for a job for, in consulting. Fascinating. And then just, just share with us then that, that move into consulting, because I think it was a by chance meeting as well, but uh, just share with us the early days of that and then build through the success that, that you brought to the, to the business. Well, my plan after my MBA had been either to start my own business in ecotoxicology or to go into consultancy. And I'd followed the, I'd followed the modules on, you know, techno management of technology and also management of R and D and consultancy during the MBA. But yeah, I finished the MBA, went off to Berlin for a month just to, cause I thought Berlin would be interesting for a month. And then went to stay with my sister in London. And when I was there, I decided one day I'd go back to, to a trade show, which I'd been in my previous job in agriculture in Brighton, the Brighton Crop Protection Council show. And I thought I'd take some CVs with me. So at, at the show, I bumped into Dr. Steve Lizansky and gave him my CV. And he said, he said, yeah, we're not hiring anyone at the moment, but I'll take your CV. And I think it was about two, two weeks later, he gave me a job. And I've been with the company ever since. So it was, so it was a, a certain amount of serendipity about it but anyway it worked out well i think from his point of view he was looking for someone who you know was proactive and would actually approach him and it's a right yeah it was, it was a good fit so i have to say i've never really applied for a job throughout you know the jobs i've had at school and the jobs afterwards i've usually approached people and said give me you know, here i am can you employ me in some capacity they give me a job mm. and i think that's a yeah, if it works, it's a good way of doing it. And just on that, Robert, then, um, and your personality is coming out strong here, that, 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 that warmth uh, and the openness. Um, but just describe how you started getting into, you know, working with some massive multinational global um, clients and how you've been successful. I remember very early on at CPL, 
uh, sitting in a boardroom surrounded by, you know, global directors from a large company and just being, <laughs> feeling a bit petrified and thinking, are these people really going to take my advice? <laughs> you know, but, but, but what, what you discover is that, well, first of all, everyone's human. After a while, you discover that these CEOs of big global companies are pretty much the same as everyone else. I mean, obviously, you know, very clever, you know, they've done very well for themselves, but yeah, we're all human at the end of the day. And yeah, yeah people do, do value, value your knowledge. So if you spent a lot of time getting specialist knowledge in a certain area, then it is valuable and people will value that. So I suppose what I should have, should have known is to not underestimate you know, self-worth based on the knowledge you've, you've accumulated because that, that can, be, can be valuable for people. But I suppose, yeah, after years go by, then it becomes just more normal to do these meetings and to yeah, give advice on certain topics. And I suppose the aim is to, you know, go from, go from being a consultant to a trusted advisor, as they say. Mm. How would you describe the, you know, the, the biggest challenges that you face today and how do you help people navigate them? I think, yeah. So one of the main topics to address is, well, <clears throat> one topic we've done quite a lot of work on recently has been uh, sustainability and utilization of waste streams or co-streams. So we've done quite a lot of work on that, looking at you know, what companies produce and how they can get value from that. Uh, I, suppose, I suppose it's yeah, the important things to think outside the box and to also be very thorough in the analysis we do and to try and yeah, do, a, do everything in a methodical and thorough way in order to you know, get to useful conclusions. So, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, just just thinking about that, Robert, and you know, I come back to the point. You've been successful. I know you and I have had conversations before with you vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the McKinseys and the Baines of this yeah. world, you know, and uh, and where you fit there and why you're particularly attractive. And I'm I'm keen for us to kind of explore that a bit more. Uh, well, I think it's yeah, it's really the technical technical depth, which we have. So, I mean, CPL is an interesting company because it's not so focused that we only know about one topic. It's not like a one man band, but it's not so diverse that we don't have any depth. It's, it's somewhere in between. So you have a reasonable amount of depth in a number of related areas, which makes it interesting. And this is also, yeah, so we understand the science and technology, but also the commercial applications of it. And the other thing is, you know, because he worked on cosmetics and pet food and animal feed and food ingredients, is that if there's some technology which is applicable in food ingredients, and we, we can say to a client, there's a really good use for that in pet food. Do you know that? It's in the, quite a high-end application. And I think they appreciate that as well. There's enough experience there in order to, you know, think slightly wider than, than you would if you were just focused on one area. So in terms of that learning then here and the takeout, first up, you've got that deep, deep um, knowledge. Um, mm. I'm guessing as well as a takeout, are you, are you, pra are you practicing and, and deploying that all the time? Are you, you know, are you learning all the time along the way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also I like to, even in my free time, I like to learn. So for example, at the moment, I'm, I'm doing the virtual uh, Institute of Food Technology 
certified food scientist course. <laughs> so I've been doing various webinars on that, which is, which is really interesting because it covers, you know, food engineering and covers lots of aspects of food production. So it's, it's, it's useful and also a, a good, good bunch of guys to network with as well. So how do you do that, Robert? Because you do a 70-hour week. So, so how do you fit all this in? Yeah? I mean, one, oh, one thing just, I think is a fact yeah. is, is, is the amount of time that you put in. Uh, yeah, I, I managed, to, managed to fit it all in somehow. It's, yeah, I mean, getting up early is one thing. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's always a 70-hour week, though. Right. It can be. It can be sometimes, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. It sounds like... And, 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 another, thing, but another thing which I did study as well was... Uh, private equity and this this is because I, I mean i don't work in private equity but we do work in due diligence for private equity clients so i went to i went to Saeed business school for a, a week on a private equity course just so i could yeah really understand the customers better and i think that's a, it's important to try and you know what, what we always try and do is to put ourselves in the shoes of our customers so you think you know if i was in their position what would i be doing so I think, you know, understanding your customer and making some effort to learn about them is, is important in business. So that's why I did that. And I, I suppose the same will go for the certified food scientist course. That will give me a greater understanding of our customers as well as actually the knowledge it brings me myself. Mm. And I guess also then, Robert, um, in terms of your team and what you stand for, I'm getting a sense as well that, that you've kept business, you, you know, by, by yeah. driving your knowledge and, and, and your style and your relationship. Hmm. I, th I think the most important thing is to show that you care in consulting, <laughs> that it's not just uh, delivering a report and then saying bye. And, you know, but you do actually care about the information you're giving and about the advice you're giving and you care about what happens to the clients. And I think that helps with client retention. You know, they'll come back to you again. Yeah, and all, yeah. Also, trying to over deliver a bit, trying to exceed expectations rather than just, you know, meet them. How so do you do if that? You to, if you had to offer advice to someone, you know, looking at consulting as a career path, what would you think would be the, you know, the intangibles that would enable them to succeed? What should they be? I think yeah. Well, obviously, curiosity. Uh, <clears throat> being methodical in what you do, being structured in your thoughts, but also, <clears throat> yeah, also, also trying to, trying to think a little wider than you would otherwise and try and, and see the opportunities. But one thing, one thing which the MBA certainly helped with was seeing the commercial opportunities and things and understanding how a company functions and how different parts of a company, you know, what their objectives are you know, how the objectives of a business director differ from the objectives of a R&D director, perhaps. And, you know, having that understanding as well is useful. For, yeah, a lot of, once I'd done my MBA, a lot of the decisions which had been made in my previous company, suddenly, suddenly I understood why the management had been doing what they'd been doing. Whereas when I was there, you know, we'd shake our heads and think, well, what do they do that for? <laughs> but it all became clear yeah, as part of a broader strategy. So probably then if you had gotten the MBA at Edinburgh earlier then instead of the, the, the Dyson that sits in my house today, it would be the Harwood, right? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. 
And I'm not sure you'd be sitting in that chair, Robert, correct? Yeah. <laughs> you'd be languishing yourself somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, That's great. So let me ask you this. I mean, so you, you deal with a wide range of, um, of problems and opportunities for your clients. Um, as you look at the world today, as you look at food in particular or, or at whatever industries interest you, what, what would be the ideal project or what would be the ideal problem that you wish you had the chance to solve or to, to, to take on right now? Well, it's a, a, lot, of, a lot of work on, on feeding the global population. So, for example, recently I have been working on, on proteins and various novel protein sources, which is the, an interesting topic. So I suppose, I suppose the two biggest things are probably increasing, increasing production of nutrients and decreasing waste, but also making everything happen in a sustainable way. I think, and yeah, trying to decrease the, any deleterious effects we're having on the planet. So just on that, Robert, do you, you know, in a business, you know, in a business team world, not in a consultant world, you know, we would walk away from certain businesses if we felt, you know, they weren't, you know, riding the same uh, values or, or, or levels of sustainability. Do you do the same? Well, we do. But I think our, our clients do share the same values with us. I mean, most of the, yeah, the top global companies, certainly most of them have, a, have quite a strong sustainability agenda. And it's an important part of what they do. Mm. but also when they're representing a company you know if we because we often we work on projects technology things like technology transfer where we're trying to <clears throat> present one company's technology to other companies yeah we have to make sure that the people we work with are credible and what they have is good because otherwise it you know reflects on us so we yeah we try and we try and do our own due diligence beforehand to make sure what we're offering is a is a good offering mm. so really you know, Mike asked just now that in the consulting world, what you felt, you know, was, was unique and what the future was. I mean, what, what do you see, um, I guess, from, from listeners who, who are, you know, on their journey in consulting, uh, first of all, but, but, but also, you know, what could bridge into, into businesses that, that you deal with? What, what would you say are the top tips or hints, you know, in terms of what, what you wish you knew, but in terms of what you know now that you would pass on. And I guess we've said, uh, yeah, curiosity is one. Yeah. Also rising to challenges and not being afraid to take on new challenges. So for example, I remember when I first started at CBL, one of the other consultants said, said, said to me quite plainly, he said, we don't do due diligence projects. <laughs> and having done an MBA, I was determined to do some. <laughs> so basically, yeah, we, I mean, we learn how to do due diligence projects. And also, yeah, the most, an, an important thing is to keep learning and to learn off those you work with, to learn from your clients, to learn, learn from any collaborators. So we've done projects with Bain and McKinsey and PA and others now. And each time I work with one of them, I look at what they've done and think, what can I learn from this? And it's a, so the process of continuous improvement and trying to, yeah, and keep things moving constantly. But it's uh, like a skill set is really important of being reflective about mm. you know, what's going on. And, you know, there are a lot of parts of life and career where people don't necessarily continue to progress because maybe they're not really thinking about it, thinking about what's coming their way in a critical fashion or thinking about how they perform. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, one thing, one thing, you see the background behind me. So this is just, this is very recent. You know, obviously if I seen other people with backgrounds, I thought, yeah, custom background for our company. And, you know, but it's important. And another thing is I've, I've always embraced technology. So about two years ago, we started doing everything in the cloud and started doing a lot of internet meetings and, you know, have everything on, you know, collaborative software and moving away from the old server structure we had before. And with a recent lockdown and the pandemic, that's, we were, you know, already set up working exactly how we should be, which is useful. But it's always, yeah, always thinking ahead. How can we improve things both in the way we do things and also in what we do? So as you think about this, Robert, you know, as a scientist, as a business person, as a consultant, what impact do you think that COVID will have and sort of the, the great pause, if you will, will have on, you know, life five years from now? Will there be, will there be a, a lingering effect of all of this? I think, yeah, so, certainly in terms of, you know, how, yeah, in terms of how we, how we perceive pandemics and things, that's will certainly change. And I think the way we interact may change. I think everyone will still be a bit more careful about you know how we spread the you know, spread of diseases etc but also yeah i'll be, we'll be quite lucky in the in the sectors we work in because i think we've they've been exposed less to the problems from covid you know generally agriculture and ingredients and further down the value chain you know in some cases actual ingredient consumption has gone up for some companies mm-hmm. although so <clears throat> so i think we've been quite lucky in that respect but I suppose, yeah, what, what will people learn from this? As, yeah, in terms of collaboration, I think that will be here to stay. I think people will learn how to work remotely and how to collaborate better together. Mm. But I, I think, yeah, despite the downsides, there will be lots of opportunities which pop up, which people should be looking out to exploit and as the economies regrow and as things take off again. So that's a, I mean, one, one thing which probably will happen is that people will <clears throat> look more at their costs and look more at, you know, what, what else they can produce from what we already have and how to get maximum value from their companies. That's what normally happens in a downturn mm-hmm. is people really focus on how to extract the maximum value which, from things they already have. And when things are, <clears throat> so maybe, yeah, ho- hopefully innovation won't get stifled too much because, you know, Innovation is often a, a good way to grow despite problems. One of, the, one of the things they told us in the MBA was try and innovate yourself out of trouble if you possibly can. Yeah, try and invest, invest more in times of a downturn. And just on that then, what, you know, without going into specifics, of course, but what, what, what trends from clients, customers, requests, are you seeing for the future and and you mentioned one earlier something about the uh, population i mean what you, you know what's the panacea of of i guess challenges but equally the 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 opportunities around the corner well yeah feed, feeding the world in a sustainable way and sustainable production is yeah it's obviously a big trend the other thing we've seen is a move move from producing say a single ingredient into more of a refinery approach. So for example, <clears throat> instead of producing a flour from wheat, is producing a flour, a fiber, uh, the fats, which go with the 
with, from the wheat, etc., and trying to break down all the components and valorize absolutely everything you can get from it. And I think that's, yeah, in a in, in world of ingredients, that will happen across, across the board. So, for example, but do we have enough? Yeah, yeah, sorry, Robert, go on. So, for example, in fermentation, you know, people are now selling the organism which they use to produce, produce a product, selling that off as a protein source. Mm. Whereas in the past, that was waste and that would be a disposal cost. But now they might fractionate it out and yeah, sell it into feed, for example. So it's interesting to, able, to, to see the way which, you know, sustainability is increasing and people are making the most of what they have. And that's often bought on by cost pressures. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask then on the sustainability, because it is a panacea in, in, in itself, isn't it? And how um, company clients do it across all sorts of sectors. But, but in food in particular, I mean, are you saying, you know, just so, so we're very clear that there may not be enough food on the planet in years to come of the current kind of uh, production cycle and what we have? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be more difficult to produce. <clears throat> Because of a yeah limited limited area to produce it in, and there's been a huge yeah huge amount of interest in plant proteins recently, so that's a that's one area which is taking off, which is more sustainable, and then yeah proteins from other sources as well, alongside of that. <clears throat> what do you think? What role do you think climate change will have then on food production? That's, yeah, it's difficult to say, but it's going to definitely change what can be produced where. And yeah, I mean, it will follow the climate. Yeah, the climate change will, will change agriculture. It's, yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult, to, difficult to say for certain, but there will there definitely be shifts in which crops can be produced in which countries. And also the... So I suppose the other thing which is, is changing is, the, is where the crops are processed as well. So, for example, if you take, take the example of, of pulses and peas in Canada, a few years ago, they were all being shipped off to China for processing. And now the capacity is being built in Canada to process them. But that's, all, that's more to do with sustainability there. Yeah, but the ranges of crops will either decrease or, or, or increase depending on what changes happen. And I suppose businesses have to, yeah, they'll have to adapt to what's happening. Mm. And then generally on that theme, is there differences you see or hear when you talk to clients from regions or, or, or is it much the same globally? So, you know, do you hear something different from the Asian AA community uh, versus uh, Western Europe, et cetera? Well, most of our, yeah, most of our projects are sort of done on a global basis. In terms of, you know, there's obviously, in terms of production of foods, there's some markets which are still developing and can still, still have some way to go before they reach maximum efficiency, as it were. And I suppose the thing to do is to try and do it in as a sustainable manner as possible. Mm. So if you look at a pig farm in Denmark and compare it to a pig farm in the Philippines, you may see that there's, you know, certain practices which can be adopted and certain additives which can be used, which can you know, improve things quite, quite a lot. So as you, you know, kind of given where you are, you've had all these um, really interesting experiences. If you kind of think back 
what do you what do you wish you knew at age at the age of 20 or the age of 30 probably yeah the value of knowledge <laughs> yeah and yeah and what you can do if you have knowledge <laughs> and you know the fact that people are interested in buying knowledge you can gain knowledge accumulate it and you can sell it and that can be a business i don't think i realized that when i was 20 <clears throat> i saw knowledge as something which was good for me and would but yeah i never really yeah i never really under i didn't really the idea of consultancy hadn't really come to me by then yeah. would you make in that's in that sense robert would you make a distinction between knowledge and expertise or not I suppose, yeah, I mean, expertise is a good foundation to build knowledge on. Because if you have knowledge but don't know what to do with it, then it's less useful. Because obviously these days we're in a sort of knowledge economy and, you know, everyone can get on the internet and find knowledge. I mean, there's a certain amount of expertise in finding the right knowledge. And then there's a certain amount of expertise in using that knowledge to come to right conclusions. So it's a combination of both, really. Yeah. Knowledge and expertise. <clears throat> but then there's the expertise, which, yeah, just um, from learning from previous experience, well, there's a experience as well as expertise. So, you know, having the experience to know what works and what doesn't work and, you know, having case studies to fall back on, on, you know, things that should be done, learning from the past as well. Yeah, that's important. And that's, that's, that's one fascinating part of the job as well, is talking to talking to people who've succeeded in, in this business and finding out, you know, what they've done and in the world of ingredients, for example, you know, I've had some great conversations with uh, sort of well-known business leaders who've, you know, created new products and launched them. And, you know, it's, it's been good to learn, you know, what they did and how they did it. And yeah. <clears throat> and, and just on that, Robert, you know, your interface has been massive there. What, what lessons can you kind of distill down for us on, the most successful or the, or the leaders where you can build and, and share maybe the top two or three insights of why you feel they are successful? Well, I suppose the most important thing, well, first of all, is to, is to have a mission you want to fulfill and have a vision. Then to stay, stay focused and to, yeah, take opportunities as well and, and don't be averse to risks. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people have taken risks and have failed and then carried on again and yeah and see every failure as a challenge that's the other thing but <clears throat> and just to, to add to that then what's your you know again you think of clients coming to consultants now so i'm a i'm a client how best do i get the best out of you oh the best way to yeah to interact with a consultant it's, it's first of all, first of all, yeah, do you trust the consultant's expertise? You know, I've had, sometimes a client will want to use the consultant as more of an employee and will come up with their own, their own method of doing things as well as the, exactly what they want done. And the thing is that, you know, in, in consultancy, when he works, works in it for a long time, you have your own ways of doing things, your own methods, which work very, very well. So, so I, th I think it's best to let the consultant use the methods they have. I mean, obviously, you know, you have a, as a client, you have a certain outcome and a certain objective which you want to achieve. But the thing is, you know, you don't go to a doctor and tell the doctor how to treat you. You tell him the <laughs> symptoms, but you won't tell him. So treat the consultant the same, you know, 
yeah, just respect that consultants have done consultants have done this before. I think that's important. And the other thing is not chasing after not or not chasing after uh, information for the sake of information. So sometimes you know you might have a client who says they want fifty interviews in a certain area, and you have to explain to them, you know, what's the point of fifty if you've interviewed thirty and you have the answer and you know you have the answer and nothing's changing. You know, and after that it just becomes a box ticking exercise and it doesn't add value to anything. So it's yeah, so so the sort of methodology and the way you go about things, yeah, leave that to a consultant. And the other thing is to interact as well. You know, with right. this with days of collaborative software, I've had you know, I've had some recent projects where if I'm allowed to mention Microsoft or Microsoft Teams, I've actually had the clients as a member of the team. They've actually, you know, been on the chat interacting on a daily basis. So it's, I mean, I mean, that can be good as long as they, as long as obviously they follow the rule I just said and let, let a consultant do what a consultant's good at. So, yeah, but I think, yeah, but I think in, in future, you know, there will be more integration than the, yeah. I prefer that way. And that way, that, that way, you, you know, you do, you do get to know your client better and, mm. you know, make, <clears throat> make sure you can actually, you know, achieve what they, what they need. I suppose another, another thing consulting is, yeah, it's actually, yeah, yeah, listen to a consultant and don't get upset if they tell you something you don't like. So for example, you know, years ago at CPL, we did some work on, I think it was sugar beet pectin. And we told the client at the time that his, his idea of going to this market was a really bad idea. And he was, he was up, upset with us. Uh, but later on, he came back and he said, you know, because he was intending to tell the board that it was a very good idea. But later on, he came back to us and said, and said I, th I think you probably saved our company a lot of money. And we said, well, thanks so much. And, and this is where we have a little logo. It says telling clients what they need to know rather than what they would like to hear. And that's where that came from. He said, that's what we've done. Uh, Robert, what you wish you didn't know? What I wish I didn't know. Okay. <clears throat> actually, yeah, I mean, when sometimes not knowing about subjects is actually helpful in consulting hmm. because you can look at it with a, a fresh pair of eyes. But... I suppose the things which I wouldn't want to know is things which hold me back. Because sometimes by having knowledge of a certain area, you can put up a barrier and you can say, I've, I've tried that before, it doesn't work, or I've done something, it doesn't work. So, yeah, I can't think of a specific example. But, yeah, anything I wouldn't want to know is anything which prevents you from moving forward okay. with what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of having on some topics or subjects, and again, I'm kind of broadening this for the listener, something where you might have a bias. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, anything which, which creates a bias. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as a consultant myself, I mean, one of the things that, you know, you sometimes hear from clients or prospective clients is the idea that, well, you don't really know our business or you don't, you know, you're not, you know, deep into our industry. And so I, I kind of, in, in the back of my mind, I'm kind of thinking, Robert, that, okay, well, if I, if I fully knew your business in the way that you know it, and if I knew the industry in the way that you know it, and if I look at things the same way that you look at things, mm -hmm. then I'm probably going to reach the same conclusion that you do, which is already not working. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
yeah, a fresh, fresh pair of eyes is very useful sometimes. That's fascinating. Well, this is really good stuff. I'm, you know, I'm kind yeah. of notes for my own use as a consultant. <laughs> I think as well that, um, you know, listeners will get a lot out of this because what you had, you know, from the outside looking in, Robert, it looks like you've had this kind of exploratory life where you've done a lot of different things and you've done a lot of different things really well, which is a unique, you know, unique um, characteristic. But, um, but I think that that sense of curiosity and, and, and I think, you know, what comes through as well, Robert, is sort of your sense of, of adventure too. Those, those yeah. qualities can serve people well. Yeah. And also you should set yourself challenges as well <clears throat> and not be afraid of what you're afraid of. So for example, you know, I, I do have a bit of a fear of uh, public speaking and presenting at conferences, but I always present at conferences just because, yeah, it's, it's useful. And even though, even though there's a fear there, I enjoy it. And it's, <clears throat> yeah, definitely, definitely worth challenging yourself as much. Another example is, you know, I've always been a bit afraid of heights. So, you know, when I was a teenager in the cadets, at school, I signed up to do a parachuting course. <laughs> and I have to admit, after jumping out of aircraft at three and a half thousand feet, is my fear of heights decreased quite a lot. <laughs> but, I'm, but it was, about, was the most frightening thing I ever did in my life. <laughs> That's bold. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> so, Robert, thank you uh, very much for this yeah. uh, podcast. Um, you know, I feel we've got a, an amazing amount of learning from you and, 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 elements of of extreme uh, qualities and skills you know you talk about your curiosity facing fear um, and certainly battling you know mm. in a consulting world that you, you know you, as you described you're knocking on or with or along or against the major business uh, the major area uh, consulting businesses around the world and, and you've been highly successful and and actually change um change changing the world yeah by pushing yeah the boundaries of a, a sustainability assessor. So um, yeah, just want to thank you for the podcast and uh, wish you, I wish you every success. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it, Robert. Really, really good stuff. Thank you. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at what I wish I knew show.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.